Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with the changes that were proposed to the Provincial Land Act. We talked a lot about that on the show today here. The provincial government moving to joint decision-making with First Nations on public land use decisions. Lots of controversy about this, lots of confusion. And now the government backing down here, backing away from it here. They are can't, they say they will not introduce this now in the spring session of the legislature. You're going to do more consultation here. I got Robin Younger standing by to discuss. Have a listen to cabinet minister Nathan Cullen here about why the government retreating here on these land act changes, at least for now. Frankly, the lies. And I don't use the word very often because it's a careful word to use, but folks were just inventing stuff for political purposes. And people got scared and they got worried and in some cases got angry. Okay, so he says people were lying about these changes to the proposed changes to the Land Act. Let's discuss where we're at with this thing now. Robin Younger is my guest. Robin is a lawyer at Macmillan LLP. He is an expert on Indigenous and environmental law. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Robin, thanks a lot for coming on today. Hi, Mike. Thanks. Thanks a lot for being here. I want to concentrate on what is coming next here with this. But what is your reaction, first of all, Robin, to this decision by the provincial government here to put the brakes on this now? Well, I mean, I think the minister's explained that there needs to be some more time for consultation and minimum. And, you know, he's made some other comments. I'm not going to respond to all of those. But just generally speaking, I think the government has acknowledged that there was a need for more consultation. And and so I'm going to leave it at that. Yeah, there's a need for more consultation. So where do we go forward here now? Because they're not saying that they're canceling this outright, right? Like, presumably, this would come back come back later. So what's your understanding of what's happening now with this? Well, I think the key point to understand is that this is all being driven by a law called the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act. Yeah. It's a law that British Columbia passed in 2019. And, and Section 3 of it requires the government to take all necessary measures, all necessary measures, to ensure that British Columbia's laws conform to this United Nations document. And and so the Land Act was just one statute that, you know, was was or is in the process of being amended. But the government has to go through all of the provincial laws and review it relative to UNDRIP and, and you know, to live up to this commitment, make changes. And and I think that's a very big question. What, what is this going to mean? There, This is not the only one under discussion. The Forest Act has been amended but not yet brought into force there's a intentions paper out there to do the same thing for the water sustainability act or similar things so this is just the beginning of a much larger discussion because i think when when the declaration act was passed in 2019 everybody thought oh yeah you know that sounds good everybody voted for it it was unanimously supported right but i think now the chickens are coming home to roost and people are saying wait a minute is that what the u.n declaration really means yeah, because when we're talking about joint decision-making over Crown land, what does that mean to you? Like, what should the public take away from that? There's been, there's been a lot of debate about whether this would give First Nations a veto over land use decisions in B.C. The government denies that. What is your understanding of how it would work? Well, I'll just refer to the legislation, Section 7 of this Declaration Act. It talks about joint decision-making agreements or, or agreements requiring First Nation consent. Yeah. And, you know, to my mind, that means, you know, control over decision-making to a very significant extent by Indigenous groups. And and I think there just needs to be a a clear and honest discussion about what exactly, you know, is being proposed. Right now, before this Declaration Act, 
uh, came about, there's a pretty extensive uh, framework requiring under the, our constitution the government to consult and, and accommodate and try and reach agreement with Indigenous groups. The courts have repeatedly said we encourage you trying to reach consent. Right. But they've also said at the end of the day, the government makes the decisions in the public interest. It has to reasonably balance Indigenous and non-Indigenous interests. And, and you know, this, these agreements don't apply the same standard. So it's a change. And for me, the real question is this. If the UN Declaration, if, if we have to review all of our legislation to make changes to match up to the UN Declaration, what exactly needs to be changed? What part of the legislation that exists in British Columbia today, which includes human rights protections, equality protections, special protections for Indigenous rights, what what falls short? Where, where, where more do we need to go under UNDRIP? Because I don't think people understand that. Yeah. Speaking of Robin Younger, Robin is a lawyer, Macmillan LLP. He's an expert on Indigenous and environmental law, talking about joint decision-making with First Nations over the land in, in B.C. Um, I spoke to Terry T.G. about this. He's the regional chief of the B.C. Assembly of First Nations. And we tried to get to the bottom of how this is going to work. And one of the questions I had for him was, let's say there is an agreement between the provincial government and a First Nation over something like a, a marina and they want to change the marina. They want to add more boat docks, or someone, or there's an agreement over a, a golf course, and they want to change the agreement, like put up a bunch of condos in the golf course or something. And the provincial government says yes, but the First Nation says no. What what happens then? And I want to play his response because I thought this was interesting, and I didn't know this part of it. For your thoughts, so this is Terry T.G. here on a recent show. Uh, BC Assembly of First Nations. Let's listen. And this is a whole point of uh, UNDRIP, uh, free, prior, and informed consent, where decisions are made and decisions perhaps are made together. Okay, but well, I guess my point is, what if they can't? What if you can't make a decision together? What if the government says, "Yeah, we would well, like this"? To... Okay, we right. could go in circles here. Um, but this is why we need to make uh, some sort of dispute resolution process with uh, First Nations. Okay, a dispute resolution process he's talking about there now. This is something new that I've heard. Like, how would that work? Are you talking about bringing in some other group here that would, have to, that would now have some new authority to, de, to decide these, make these decisions? I didn't understand that. Robin, your thoughts? Um, I'm not really familiar with that argument. I don't know what it would entail. Um, uh. What I can tell you is that there's lots of things in the UN Declaration that I don't think are particularly controversial, and they're very consistent with British Columbia's laws related to human rights, right to education, nationality, etc. But there's a few provisions, particularly related to lands and resources, and that's where the issue gets complicated. Article 26 says Indigenous groups have Indigenous nations have the right to their traditional territories. Right. Article 32 talks about prior and informed consent over developments that could affect Indigenous groups. And, and these have been an issue since the uh, UN Declaration was, was being debated in the UN. You know, at the time, uh, these articles specifically were cited. New Zealand cited them and said, you know, we have concerns uh, in, in terms of the principle of governing for the good of all of our citizens and the right of a veto over the state. You know, this is a quote. So these issues have been there for a long time, and they're unresolved. And I think that's why, you know, now the rubber's meeting the road as the government goes about looking to change BC's legislation. All, all I can say is, to me, you know, 
joint decision making means you need two parties to approve. At least that's how I would understand it. Certainly the word consent means you need approval. And if, if you look at the, the Taltan agreements that the government has signed, um, you know, they, they talk about their public statements, talk about the need for consent. So I, yeah. I, I think we really need to work through this issue, talk through it, you know, not avoid it, not say there's no veto or it's, you know, there's a veto over everything. It, no, both of those are too extreme. But, but, you know, is there a real decision-making authority being contemplated here? Yes. Is that consequential? Yes. Yeah, sure, sure. His last question for is, is BC the only province in Canada that has done this? Like, has any other province done, done this? No other province has done it. The federal government has implemented, has, has passed legislation, but it doesn't contain the same provisions that British Columbia's legislation contains about entering into these joint decision-making agreements and consent decision-making agreements. To my knowledge, BC is the only um, jurisdiction, you know, in the world that has gone that far and committed to taking all steps necessary to ensure its laws are consistent with the UN Declaration. Okay, we're following it very closely here. Robin, thanks for coming on with your thoughts on it today. You're welcome. Let's talk about the guy who got speeding in a bus lane uh, in North Van. Man, he got a heavy fine here. And this is a, an interesting case. This is a Ford F-150 truck caught speeding on a bu- in a bus lane on Main Street, headed toward the Ironworkers Memorial Bridge. He got caught by North Vancouver RCMP. Uh, it's interesting because you take a look at the release on this. They got him on a, a police a police officer on a motorcycle uh, had been dispatched there to watch what was going on because the police had received a ton of complaints there in North Vancouver about people speeding in this particular bus lane. So they put a motorcycle cop there and they nabbed this guy. The video is pretty wild too because this guy was heading was really tooling through there in a good clip through this through this bus lane and they got him and they got him on a, a heavy fine here too for careless driving. I'm going to talk to Grant Gottkatrue about that in just a moment here. But you know what? Excessive speeding in British Columbia, you can wrap up some serious serious fines and you can also have your car impounded for excessive speeding have a listen to the cabinet minister responsible here on this this is public safety minister mike farnworth here talking about excessive speeding have a listen it's shocking um it's really surprising and when you think about it uh excessive speeding you've got to be going you know at least 40 kilometers over the speed limit so you're doing 90 in a 50 zone in other words you're an idiot. Putting the brakes on excessive speeders could even include an effort to seize people's cars permanently. That is certainly, uh, you know, a possibility. It's certainly something that I would be open to looking at. Okay. Seize the vehicle permanently if you get caught for excessive speeding. Now, this guy in North Van, he got caught speeding in a bus lane. He pleaded guilty to careless driving. Let's discuss now with my guest, Grant Gottgetrue. Grant is a former traffic police officer. He's now a forensic consultant on traffic violations. ForensicTrafficPro.com. Grant, thanks a lot for coming on today. Always my pleasure, Mike. Okay, Grant, let's talk about this case here. Now, this guy speeding in a bus lane in North Vancouver. He's uh, convicted for careless driving. $1,500 fine. Interesting case. Grant, your thoughts? Um, I just wanted to back up just uh, to what uh, the minister said there. It's 41 sure. or higher. 41 or 40. higher. 
Okay, forty-one yeah. so or higher. If you're doing if you're doing ninety in a fifty zone, then it's not excessive speed. It's forty-one or higher. But I I just wanted to um, explain that because even though it's their legislation, he quoted it wrong. But that's fine. Um, as for this particular case, um, yeah, kind of interesting. I, I I read it on the line there, and I, it was it was an interesting case. There's some points that kind of need explaining what, what jumped out at you first of all let's talk about the offense here so careless driving this is interesting because they say the guy was speeding through a bus lane but they didn't charge him with speeding they charged him with careless driving what's the difference there well this is there's three sections under 144 of the motor vehicle act um drive without due care drive without consideration and speed relative to road conditions um the drive without uh do care is pretty self-explanatory you're not you're not paying attention to what you're doing you're driving like a buffoon you're driving without due care some people could call it careless driving driving without consideration is just being ignorant to everyone else on the road i used to write that ticket for the people that would block the lanes the intersection at taylor and marine when they knew they couldn't make the left turn because of backup because of the rush hour and they jump into the intersection knowing full well they couldn't clear it and then the lights would go green for everyone else and no one could move because this buffoon's in the middle of the intersection. So I would write drive without consideration for that one. And then speed to relative to road conditions are like if you're driving too fast in the snow yeah. and you crash. But the first two, especially drive without due care, that's six points. Mm. That's not three points. And the uh, the, the, the um, traffic court, the, the, the judicial J, JPs, Justice of the Peace, they don't have jurisdiction or authority to lower the fines uh, sorry to lower the points yeah so they can't they can't take something that's six points and lower it to three that's all legislated from the government and that is handled by uh the motor vehicle branch and the superintendent of motor vehicles that that's it those points never change and it would appear in, the, in this case on careless driving just doing some research that would include six penalty points right if you get <laughs> racked up for careless driving yeah, drive yeah. without due care or careless driving is six points. So why yeah. is this one three points? So I'm just kind of wondering. I, I don't know if the uh, I don't know if it was reported properly by the RCMP. I don't know if it was their press release or not. Yeah, um, they did. It has been reported that he was hit with three penalty points, but it would appear that you should have got six points. What do you think of the fine? Fifteen hundred bucks, like. That is that an excess, a pretty heavy fine? Would you say, like, if this guy had been ticketed for speeding instead, that would, it would the fine would have been lower, right? When it comes to court, it's always different in traffic court. Back in the olden days, when I was on the job uh, in the eighties and nineties, um, the judges could raise the fines in traffic court up to two thousand dollars. That was the maximum. Wow! But then the higher court changed that and said no. Traffic court judges do not have the authority to raise the fines. So to this day, some will raise the fines, some won't. But they'll raise the fines if both the police and the ticketed person agree on a raised fine. Hmm. And you're probably saying to yourself, well, who would, what driver would agree on a raised fine? Yeah. Well, if the charge has been modified. So if you're charged with excessive speed with a $368 fine, and you don't want that on your driving record, you could agree with the officer to uh, plead to simple speeding with a raised fine of five hundred to $500, oh, which happens. Oh, okay, okay. kind of like a plea but, bargain. Exactly, but not yeah. all traffic judges will do that because some of them say, no, we don't have the authority to do that. 
but some do. So it's kind of a hit and miss thing. So in this case, for the fine to go to $1,500, um, the motorist would have had to agree to that. What do you think about offenses in a bus lane typically? Because I actually had to look this up last night thinking about this. What is the actual rule for driving in a bus lane? Because what if you have to make a, let's say, a right-hand turn at an intersection? You're allowed to go into that bus lane briefly in order to execute that turn at an intersection, correct? Well, that's the tricky part, right? And the yeah. other problem is people look at the diamond that's on the uh, on the island or on the sign, and they just assume it's an HOV lane. Yeah. The diamond just indicates a special lane. You have to read the sign what that lane is designated for. So people just see the diamond and they automatically assume, oh, it's an HOV, which is why the lanes are painted red now for the bus. But you have to you have to follow the person and, and kind of get an eye on them and see are they are they just in that lane because they're passing somebody or are they actually yeah. going to be making a right hand turn at some point? Yeah, that's a little tricky you know, to, for a police officer for sure. Speaking to Grant Gottgetrue, talking about the driver who got rung up for fifteen hundred bucks speeding in a in a bus lane. It's interesting too, Grant. Uh, the North Van RCMP saying that they had received a whole ton of complaints about this particular bus lane and people speeding through it and misusing it. So they dispatched a, a motorcycle police officer there. And they said a, a police officer on a motorcycle can be more discreet and react more quickly to catch people. Would you agree? 100%. <laughs> it's the easiest form of traffic enforcement is on a motorcycle. You can maneuver easier. You can sit in an intersection without interfering with traffic. Um, um, and you're a smaller target, so you can actually pull up beside the person. They don't even see you. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, a... it's, it's an excellent tool for uh, traffic enforcement. We're talking about the guy who got caught speeding in a bus lane in North Van. $1,500 fine there, careless driving, got points on his record as well. We're also talking about excessive speeding and what should be the penalty for that? Should the government impound uh, a, a speeder's car permanently if they get rung up for excessive speeding? Phone me and let me know your thoughts on that. 604 280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Grant Gottkittrue is my guest. Let's go to your phone calls. Dawn in North Vancouver. Hi, Dawn. Hi there. Good Hi. morning. Morning. Hi. Morning. Yeah, so um, I find that whenever there is a problem on the um, Second Narrows Bridge, um, it's a real problem to get past that pinch point at Maine and Mountain Highway, and I know it starts way back even at uh, Brooks Bank and, and before that, but the uh, bus lane is um, a, a straight-on run all the way up to that intersection, Main and Mountain, starting at around uh, just over the Lynn Creek Bridge. So, yes, there are a ton of people who use that bus lane lately, and it's because people who are in the middle lane are trying to pinch over into the only lane they'd like you to be in to get over the bridge. Yeah. So I've seen so many people even want to get on the bridge, use that bus lane, get through the intersection, and then pinch over at the very last minute. And last week, I saw somebody come through the Main Street um, intersection from Mountain Highway and go through the intersection, pull a UE, and get right in it, the very nose, the last pinch point, 
you can get to get onto the bridge. These are all <laughs> cheaters who want to get onto the bridge, yeah. and I want to get past the bridge. I want to get to Deep Cove side. Yeah, Don, I'm really happy you called in because you're describing precisely what the police are saying that they responded to there. So do you see a lot of people breaking the rules there? A lot, and I try and get out and do any of my daytime errands and be home before 2 o'clock because it's just a gong show. And I'm trying to think what would work. Do they need to put up those tall cones to keep you in the lane? I mean... Uh, or do they just need to have some guy stand there, and that in in and of itself is a is a threat or a, a warning? And it yeah. you know they probably have to listen to the traffic report to know that hey, there's a problem on the bridge. We're going to catch our best offenders <laughs> by planting ourselves there, right in the Petro Canada um, uh, parking lot there, right on the corner. Okay. Okay, Don, thank you very much, Don, for calling in, because uh, Grant, I mean, she's describing exactly what the North Van RCMP are, are saying that that they're experiencing there, and this is why they put a, a police a police officer in a motorcycle there to nab people, for, for sure. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, well, of course, I worked in West Van for many years, and there's two bus lanes that go up to the Lionsgate Bridge, uh, one from North Van, one from West Van, and we, we were up there quite often for traffic enforcement, so... And I've been retired seven years now, and it hasn't changed. So, as, like I've always said, as long as you have free will, people are going to do what they want. And, uh, of course, <laughs> traffic in the lower mainland is horrible anyways, and no one wants to sit in it. So, you're always going to get people cutting in yeah, and for, for using sure. the bus lane. Yep. Steve in Kelowna. Hi, Steve. Go ahead. You know, I uh, <laughs> I can say I've been one of those guys who's been speeding, but not excessive speeding like that. I, I, you know... I don't think that the fines or the points work because, uh, you know, I don't have to pay that until my driver's license needs to get renewed. And that could be five years from now. And, uh, or my insurance needs to be renewed. Oh, maybe the insurance isn't even in my name. I never have to worry about that. But on the other hand, I don't think that they should be able to uh, impound someone's vehicle indefinitely. But I think if they impounded someone's vehicle for excessive speeding, it should cost them 10000 plus mm. to get it out, plus the storage fees. Make it really hurt, right? Because that is immediate. They have to pay that to get the vehicle back before they can go speed again, right? Make okay. it hurt, and then they will stop. Okay, Steve. Steve, thank you. Thank you very much for that call. Like right now, police can impound a vehicle for excessive speeding. Grant, did you ever impound a vehicle back when you were a traffic officer? Oh, what for excessive speed? For any reason. Oh well, yeah, for sure. For prohibited driving, for excessive speeds, for impaired driving, absolutely. And fines and points and impounds. They just won't deter everybody. That's just the way it is. Yeah. It's just the way it is. I mean, you go to life, you go you, you, you go to jail for life if you commit a murder. People still commit murders. So, yeah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> Lauren calling from Phoenix, Arizona. Hi, Lauren. Go ahead. Hey there. What is the posted speed limit at that particular area of the bridge that you're speaking about? Oh, it's a good question. Grant, do you know? What, on the second narrows? Yeah. Yeah. Well, on Lionsgate, it's... Uh, yeah, 60, 70, somewhere in the ballpark. I don't know. I don't remember. Somewhere around that, nope. 70, I, I just, I somewhere wanna, between 60 I and 80. Wanna, I just want to make a point. I mean, yeah, excessive speed is, is something to be concerned about. Maybe they should do it in a, in a progressive scale, depending 
like uh, 40 clicks is what, 26 miles or 21 miles, 26 miles an hour. Down here in Phoenix, we have 10 times the amount of traffic you have. We have speed limits on surface streets of 45, not 30. We go 75, 80 on the freeway in 65 zones. If they catch you 20, or 20 miles per hour over the 65, it becomes a more serious fine. We okay. have accidents, obviously, but I think the posted speed limits, uh, your speed limits are too slow, I think, is, is what I'm trying to say. Lauren, thank you. Thank you for calling in. Thank you for calling in. I appreciate it. And Grant, thank you for being on the show today. Always my pleasure, Mike. Robert picked in now eligible to apply for parole, the worst serial killer in Canadian history, charged with 27 counts of murder. He's convicted on six. The personification of evil. He should never get out of jail, in my opinion. He'd never be allowed to apply. Why do we have to re-victimize, re-traumatize the families of his victims here? by allowing him to apply for parole. I've got Lisa Freeman standing by to discuss. She knows exactly what these families are going through. You do not want to miss her story here. First, let's have a listen to Michelle Pinot. She is the mom of Stephanie Lane, one of Picton's victims. Have a listen. I think of my daughter every single day. I don't want to think about Picton every day. But Michelle Pinot is forced to think about the man who killed her daughter, Stephanie Lane. Her DNA found in the pig farm of serial killer Robert Picton. On Thursday, he will be eligible to apply for day parole. My heart is aching. My daughter does not get day parole. She's been gone for 27 years now. She doesn't get privileges that he gets, and he should stay where he is until the day he dies. Certainly agree with her. Okay, let's discuss the the parole system here and how it re-traumatizes, re-victimizes the victims here. My guest is Lisa Freeman. Lisa is a, a tireless advocate for victims' rights, and her father was viciously murdered many, many years ago, and she's had to go through the trauma of this system, and I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Lisa, thank you for coming on today. Hi, Mike. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's my great pleasure and honor to have you here. Um, before we talk about Picton, let's talk about your your dad, Roland Slingerland, and what happened to him and what you've been going through ever since. So t- tell me, can you b- briefly, I know it's painful memory, can you tell me about what happened there? Yeah, uh, my dad was uh, axed to death here in Oshawa, Ontario in 1991. And since 2011, the parole process has been unfolding for his killer, Terry Porter. And I've just been back from Victoria only a few weeks now to uh, for a full parole hearing that was denied. And I add, Mike, that there wasn't going to be a hearing to begin with. The parole board wanted to do an in-office decision for an axe murder without me there to object. But I, I wrote letters in. I, uh, you know, I... I asked them, practically begged them to have a meeting, and they did, and full parole was denied. He's on day parole, but uh, this is his second full parole bid that I managed to get denied. I'm very sorry that you lost your father in this fashion here, especially in this gruesome manner here with an act, murdered with an axe. This is unbelievable. So so let's talk about this parole system here. So your, your dad's killer here 
uh, this axe murderer, when he applied for full parole. T- tell me that again. They wanted to do it like in a private meeting without right. you? Uh, right. An in-office decision. The first uh, full parole bid was in October of 2020. We we're just starting the pandemic, but they held a he- they wanted to hold a hearing without me. Nothing to do with COVID. It's just because they can. He was past his full parole eligibility date, and they could have had an in-office decision without me there to decide something as big as full parole. And same thing now. I got notification in December that Full parole was happening in January. Again, uh, in office decision until I objected and said, you know, I really feel I should be there, that I'm, I should be oh. able to do my statement on behalf of my family in person. And they granted a hearing. Yeah, good, good for you. I applaud you for that. And you yeah. mentioned that this hearing took place in Victoria here in British Columbia. Is that because is that because uh, Terry Porter, the guy who murdered your dad here, he, was he, has he been in prison, in, uh, incarcerated in British Columbia? Uh, Ontario, Alberta, and then he was moved to William Head a few uh, years ago, and now he's in a, a halfway house on the island. So that was the closest prison to have a in-person hearing at. Yeah. What is that? Was he there in the hearing? Yeah, he was there less than 10 feet away from me. And uh, the whole crime, the whole, my dad's murder was based upon his jealousy of a woman. He was trying to find her. My dad knew where she was relocated to, but wouldn't tell him. And it turns out that since he's been on day parole, he's been um, harassing women, harassing his facilitators of programs at his uh, uh, day, uh, his group home and stuff. So they decided wisely to not grant him full parole. But I just have a feeling that if I wasn't there to object strongly on behalf of my family, that it could have gone another way. Yeah, boy, good for you for standing up on this. And and I'm glad that he was denied the full parole. Speaking to victims' rights advocate, Lisa Freeman. Lisa, can you talk a little bit about this? the parole system and, and how it impacts the family members like yourself, the, the, rel- the family members who are left behind, of the, the relatives of the victims. What is that like to go through this? It's uh, nothing short of horrific because it absolutely opens everything up again that you yeah. try to put aside as best as you can, try to heal as much as you can and to, to form some sort of life for yourself. And I have found that this is through the years since parole has been unfolding, that the system is not made for victims. It's not designed for us with our needs and minds. It's made for the offender. And that's why we find it so frustrating. That's why we find it so difficult to comprehend the moves that the Parole Board and Correctional Services Canada make. It's not yeah. designed for us. Yeah. What kind, of, what kind of changes would you like to see in the system? I would like to see that the families of victims don't have to work so hard. It shouldn't be my mm-hmm. job to keep Terry Porter in prison. Uh, things that should be just a, a no-brainer almost, like uh, serial killers, like Paul Bernardo, like axe murderers, there should not be any chance of parole at all. A life sentence yeah. should mean just a life sentence, but it doesn't. Uh, in this country, my dad was my dad's murderer was sentenced to life in prison with no parole for 25 years. And there he was at the 22-year mark out of the prison in Kingston doing community service work. That's not life in prison. Uh, life in prison are words that are used to imply severity, to show harshness or punishment. In reality, they're just an illusion. And, uh, you know, false comfort to people who are told, you know, they will be in prison for life. Yeah. Corrections and the parole board have a different meaning than, than families of victims about what life in prison really entails. 
Speaking of Lisa Freeman, let's talk about let's talk about Picton here, uh, Lisa, and his uh, his applic his ability now. He is eligible to apply for parole, and this is absolutely heartbreaking here for the families of his victims that he'd even have the ability or the opportunity to apply for parole. This is the most notorious, prolific serial killer in Canadian history. Let's listen again to Michelle Pinot, the mother of one of his victims here. Listen to this. Anybody who did what he did, what he did does not deserve to, to walk the streets again. He's an evil, evil, evil man. Lisa, what do you think about what these families are going through? Oh, I agree with her 100%. And it just shows how out of touch the parole board is with reality and out of touch with what the, the needs of the victims are. They're solely focused on the offender. And Mike is all rooted in the Corrections and, Condi and Conditional Release Act, which gives uh, people like Picton the right to apply for parole. And whether he gets it or not is, is a moot point. He, a lot of people feel that he, Paul Bernardo, and, and me for my father's killer should not even be eligible to apply for things like this, for privileges like this. And in my mind, and I'm sure most people will agree, they forfeited their right to any kind of privilege when they committed their crimes. Yeah. Yeah, it does seem, if you just apply even just a basic common sense test to this, that for someone who is convicted of these most horrific and evil crimes, why you would allow a system where the families are victimized over and over again by these parole hearings. Let's listen to Rob Danu here. He's a former Crown prosecutor here speaking about the Picton parole case. Let's listen. I understand the outrage because parole is one of the most misunderstood and even maligned aspects of the Canadian criminal justice system. And especially with the case of Mr. Picton, it makes very little sense that we would re-traumatize the families of the victims for an individual who has almost zero chance of actually obtaining parole. I hope it's not almost zero chance. I mean, I can't, I can't imagine a situation where this guy be let out. Like, yeah, I just anyway, your your thoughts, Lisa. Well, I never thought when I was 21 or 22, when um, the verdict came down for my father's killer, that there would be ever a time in the future that he would ever be considered for full parole. Yet here we are. This was his second full parole bid. And I finished my impact statement by asking the panelists in the room, you know, just who are we keeping incarcerated in this country? If we're letting people like axe murderers out, if we're giving chances to people like Robert Picton, like Paul Bernardo. So who are we actually incarcerating in this country? If, if people are able to apply, uh, regardless of what the victim's families say or do or how they object, it's still their right. So I think we really need to go back into the Corrections and Conditional Release Act and amend a few things because that's yeah. the only way things are going to change. Yeah, and, and I hope this becomes a political issue here. And I'm taking a look at the uh, opposition conservatives here on, on Parliament Hill in Ottawa who put out a statement this week that said, monsters like Picton should never be eligible for parole, much like Paul Bernardo. You've mentioned him a couple of times. Mm -hmm. they, the only way they should get out of prison is in a coffin. Picton's parole eligibility means that for every two years... Mm -hmm. He can re-traumatize the families of his victims. Is that how it works? Like every two years you're allowed to apply again? That's absolutely how it works. Yeah. And yeah. let's say he's granted day parole. That comes up for renewal every six months. 
So it's not just every two years, it's every six months that it's, it comes up for renewal. And again, the families are subjected to this and which is just a hard, hard thing to be put through. A lot of people don't have, have it in them to, uh, to uh, participate, but other people like me feel like the need to, to participate in something like this. Yeah, but like, like you said, truly, not every not everyone wants to go through something like this, no. right? Like, you know, and you can't blame them because no, why would you? But some people feel an obligation to participate in the system, like I do, and um, but you certainly wouldn't blame anyone for trying to step step aside from this absolute nightmare. Truly, the victims and the victim victims' family get the truest life sentence, and there's no parole for me from any of this or for my family or for the victims families from any of these these monsters that are you know convicted of these crimes lisa i applaud your courage and your advocacy for other victims and i thank you for being on the show today thank you you're welcome thanks for listening to the mike smith show podcast can't wait for the latest episode to drop tune into the show live from nine to noon on 980 cknw want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment send me an email mike at cknw.com thanks again for listening